Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Once again, it's that time of year when ghosts, schools, and goblins are on the prowl. That's right, it's Halloween. And as much as we are scared to admit it, that means it's also time for another Halloween hangover episode of the Film Comment Podcast, where Devika and I confront one of our greatest fears, horror movies, with the help of some masters of the macabre. For this year's festivities, we invited two horror experts to inflict some fear upon us. Film comment contributor Nicholas Russell and Clyde Foley, curator of the 90s horror series currently haunting the Criterion channel, and, as we discovered, the child star of a straight-to-video Thai horror film. The two selected a pair of freaky favorites for us. Abel Ferrara's Body Snatchers, an early 90s remake of the classic sci-fi chiller, and Michael Powell's 1960s serial killer masterpiece, Peeping Tom. Where Powell's film lived up to its reputation as an endlessly fascinating text, rich with commentary on the inherent violence of visual culture, Ferrara's streamlined variation on an oft-told tale opened up surprising questions about identity, family, and conformity. Join us, if you dare, on a journey into the very heart of fear. Very happy to gather again, as per our annual ritual. A dark rite, even. A dark rite, indeed. A a witchy rite, even. Our annual Halloween hangover episode, whose premise is very simple. Clint and I are wimps. We don't watch horror movies because we're easily scared. We try our best throughout the year to avoid horror movies and to make sure we commission any writing on horror movies to other people. And then Halloween comes around and we decide to sacrifice ourselves in the spirit of rites and rituals and invite two horror experts, uh, enthusiasts, some depraved souls who like watching vile and gory things on screen to recommend a couple movies to us, uh, basically assign us Halloween movies to watch. And we watch them and then we talk about them and... We pay our annual dues to the genre of horror. And at the end, we evoke the dark spirits and, you know, draw pentagrams and that sort of thing. So it's like it's a good time. Everybody has a great time. Let me introduce or ask them to introduce themselves, the depraved souls joining us for this year's Halloween hangover. Uh, Nicholas, you go first. Hi, guys. Uh, I'm Nicholas Russell. Uh, I'm a critic, writer. Uh, frequent contributor to places like Reverse Shot. I'm also one of the editors at Brightwall Dark Room and a columnist at Defector. What's your horror movie bona fides? My bona fides? I I would probably fall into the enthusiast category. I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I watch horror movies year-round. That's impressive. All right. Halloween's an excuse for me to get the people around me to watch horror movies and usually I'll compile a list and if I can get them to watch like one or two of them it's usually a success and the other sordid guest I don't joining know, sordid us today. is not really 
scary. <laughs> Zernick so sounds like kind of, yeah, just, <laughs> yeah. just um, bad, <laughs> morally <laughs> bad. I'll take sorted. The other uh, spooky lover spooky. of chills. Chills and thrills. <laughs> uh, my name is Clyde Folly. Uh, I am a video editor for the Criterion Collection and also uh, a sometime programmer of films on the Criterion channel including this year's 90s horror series. Uh, as to additional bona fides, uh, I starred in a made-for-TV Thai horror movie when I was four. Wow. Damn. That is pretty heavy duty. What, Damn. More, give us more. Yeah, we need more. Uh, it's ba- How do I describe this thing? This <laughs> thing is basically like a shot on video um, creepier made and creepier. for TV ripoff of Child's Play, and that is ah! it's the sort of horror movie about a doll that comes to life <laughs> and tries to possess the body of a child. Uh, and I was that child. Wow! I oh can I say that Child's Play is the reason I'm scared of horror movies because <laughs> when I when I would go to the video store as a child, I would like fixate on the box and be like, "This is the scariest thing that I could possibly have seen as a child." Like just the box. I think I had a similar introduction to Child's Play at that same age uh, at the video store, except uh, my parents perhaps allowed too much in terms of what I rented and they actually let me rent this thing when I was about five years old and it scared the hell out of me and I was terrified of Chucky for yeah. uh, my whole childhood uh, and now here we are. So how did you end up in this movie? Like what's the story of how you got to act in this movie? I mean the story I think also has a bit to do with like colorism in uh, late 80s Thailand uh, where you know I I was born in Bangkok and uh, my mother's Thai and my dad's like a white dude from Jersey. Um, And the thing about like a lot of the popular like actors, performers and pop stars in Thailand uh, and other parts of Southeast Asia too, is a lot of them tend to be biracial, like specifically like half Thai, half white. Um, And basically my mother, as my mother tells me, uh, I loved watching movies from the earliest age, and she just thought, "Why don't I just take them to be in an audition to be in one?" And she took me to the to the audition, and they loved this half white toddler. Uh, don't downplay and... your acting chops. You probably dazzled them as no, a possessed no, 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 no. child. I was ter- <laughs> a terrible actor to the point where apparently I refused to go by any other name except my own. <laughs> and so they had to change the character's name. I just I just had to be a, an annoying child and I did the job. I also re- remember that this was basically like I was on set for 24 hours straight. Uh, <laughs> they don't really have unions in Thailand. And I just remember by the end of the shoot, just like uttering every profanity that I had in my four-year-old brain. So, yeah, I don't know. A little four-year-old nightmare diva. Maybe this is why I never acted again. Horror royalty. You you really are. You're horror royalty. Like Nick low, very low bottom. Like a lord, self-made lord. horror man. And we're like the pariahs. Horror peasants. So, Clyde, why don't we we start with the royalty here? Um, you picked a movie from your Criterion series that you just referenced, which is 90s horror. Can you tell us what the movie's called and why you picked it? Sure. Uh, the film is 
Abel Ferrara's 1993 film Body Snatchers, which is the third adaptation of uh, the Jack Finney novel, The Body Snatchers. Um, I picked it because it's great. It's, uh, it's, when tasked with assigning uh, some horror homework to people who uh, profess to not like horror movies, I leaned towards uh, what I consider to be the artier end of the spectrum. And this is a film that Abel Ferrara made right between Bad Lieutenant and Dangerous Game. Nicholas, maybe you want to say what you thought of the film. Had you seen it before? Um, I hadn't, so I was really glad to. I confess to being... I, I've skimmed the sort of surface of Abel Ferrara's work. I've liked everything I've engaged with, but I think he is someone... Also, like, Werner Herzog, who, like, you realize they've done, like, a, a lot. Like, just a lot of different kinds of movies. And watching this one was so interesting. I just, like, sometimes you don't realize a, a certain director, like, is even interested in, like, that kind of genre. And I thought, I'm sure Clyde will get into this, you know, but, like, the sort of practical effects that are in this movie are, like, very well done and very gross and like clearly very like well thought through like it just made me want to know more about like to hear from abel ferraro being like yeah this is like the decision we made about why this looks this way or where this was set i also know that like because it was like a major studio there was some like behind the scenes sort of like friction um in terms of just like how that story came to be but clyde maybe you can uh quickly walk us through the plot, how it differs from the previous two iterations of the Body Snatchers story um, and kind of, you know, what like set the scene. What's the vibe of this movie? Okay, so I'll, to set the scene, I'll give a sort of a brief run through of the earlier adaptations because I think that's useful when discussing this. Uh, the first film, uh, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, came out in 1956. It's directed by Don Siegel. Um it is about a small town being overrun by these pod people who, uh, as they say, they get you in your sleep. Uh, people are slowly being replaced by the alien replacements. And uh, a local psychiatrist, psychologist, um, uh, figures out what's going on and tries to do something about this. 20 years later, we get the second adaptation of the book, uh, which is also called The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, this time directed by Philip Kaufman. Um, you know, actually, I forgot the most important detail about the the first adaptation, which is that uh, depending on how you interpret the film, uh, it is either about the the communist threat infiltrating America, or it is about um, the uh, McCarthyist uh, um, uh, uh, insanity that's happening in in reaction to all this uh so it's sort of a slippery movie in that it's it's open to interpretation uh what it's actually about um the second adaptation the 70s version is relocates everything to san francisco and is very much about um the death of the counterculture and what happens to these aging leftists uh uh, as their values start diminishing and uh, while they're also being replaced by the pod people. Sort of a yuppie um, 
yuppies. Yeah, they, they, they become like uh, the counterculture kids who then become yuppies. Exactly. Uh, Donald Sutherland, I think, is the lead, correct? It's Donald yeah. Sutherland. Jeff Goldblum is in there. Brooke Adams, I believe, is the female lead. It's been a minute since I've seen this adaptation, which I, I think is also great. Also, like the the first film, Donald Sutherland plays uh, a member of like the the health bureaucracy, or instead of being a psychiatrist, he's like a health inspector, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and then that brings us to Abel Ferrara's Body Snatchers, uh, which... Drops the invasion. The, drops the invasion. Actually, it really operates on the sort of like shorthand of familiarity with the other films. It doesn't even really exactly get into what's happening or, or why. It's just like, look, don't go to sleep. You will be replaced by pod people. You know this. I know this. We don't have to explain this to you. Um, I think of these three adaptations, this one has like the least regard to the actual plot of the original novel or it basically just like takes the alien invasion and drops it into a military base. And, uh, and this time it's about military conformity and anti-authoritarianism, but it also is about the civilian family that, uh, relocates this military base. And the father who's played by Terry Kinney is, um, a staffer with the EPA uh, who's doing some toxic waste tests on the base. And it would seem that based on these previous adaptations that this protagonist would, that this guy would be the protagonist. Um, but instead, the protagonist is in fact his teenage daughter, which is the other sort of big twist on uh, the adaptations uh, of this novel. To me, this was a, of the three adaptations. This is the one that is most heavily influenced by Terrence Malick. <laughs> that's, that's how I would characterize it. In, in terms of the, in terms of its teenage protagonist, there's a voiceover, and she's sort of it's like semi poetic, but like teenage angst coming through. It's got a real like Gen X MTV '93 vibe, and then the filmmaking as well. There's this really kind of like magic hour glow to everything, like a lot of the shots and. In my reading, I think the, the the moment that stuck out to me in terms of its kind of social metaphor uh, or the allegorical element of the film was when there's a debate between like the helicopter pilot who's sort of a rebel Tom Cruise-ish type dude, maverick type character, and um, one of the pod people or something, and they're like... <laughs> everything's better when we're all the same. And he's like, you'll never take me. My soul is my own. Was this with Forrest Whitaker? Maybe I'm misremembering and should re-record this. Can you, do you guys remember this moment where there's like a brief like debate about individuality versus collective? That's Forrest Whitaker and right, right, right. the body snatched soldiers. Right. I think the exact line, the Whitaker line is, but individuality is important or something. I just, <laughs> it, it was very like... <laughs> like strangely simple <laughs> as he like takes a sip of crystal pepsi and like <laughs> in my mind this was like this was the mtv like 93 like individuality is important like every be weird and this film equates the collective with uh both military conformity and with like mindless emotional like a uh, stalinist effort to take over the world I agree with all that. And I think on top of that, there's the additional element that I think this also fits into like the Abel Ferrara body of work uh, with regard to like, like coming right off a of bad lieutenant, which is also also a movie about 
how like an individual is supposed to exist within like the confines of like religion and Catholicism. I feel like this is exactly what what Harvey Keitel is wrestling with, among other things that he's wrestling with in that movie. But he's he's wrestling with this notion of individuality, and I think that that. Um, a lot of this movie ends up being about like, well, what does it mean to be like an indiv- individual to have the soul? Like what happens when that soul is gone? Like, what do you see? And I think Meg Tilly does such a great job in this movie of doing that transformation. To me, she's the highlight of the film. I think I I found it a bit underwhelming at other points. I think un- not underwhelming as much as dated, you know, it really feels like off its time, like some of the themes that Clint and, Clyde, you just outlined, they feel a bit dated now. In fact, you know, I was watching the film and I was thinking of The Beast uh, by Bertrand Bonello that just screened at the New York Film Festival. I don't know if you guys have seen it. This seems like such a recurring fear, right? Because uh, the the connection with The Beast is part of the movie set in this dystopian future where uh, you can sub- submit yourself to some kind of AI-led purging process that rids you of all your past trauma so you become like an emotionless robotic worker you just become like a very good worker for society because you're not you don't have these emotional hang-ups and I was just thinking about how this concern has recurred across cinema but especially in these kinds of sci-fi horror narratives it seems like this fear that doesn't go away, but it takes on different cultural manifestations, you know, at one point, communism, at another point, like governmentality itself, right? Like, and then censorship represents that kind of uh, force towards conformity. And then at some point, it's like capitalism, uh, or consumerism. And then now it's technology and AI. So there's, this keeps coming up. And I guess here in, in, in Abel Ferrara's version, what Clint, what you said, this particular cultural moment of really kind of uh, where a countercultural emphasis on individuality, you know, especially in arts and culture, um, that comes through. But it is kind of strange to me that the site of this thematic staging is the military, which has just always been the site of this sort of like conformity versus individualism so just something about it was kind of dated but also a little bit I was surprised that it was so obvious you know like soldiers turning into efficient robots just seems like almost too literal and so like their transformation was not that uh alarming because I mean, you don't really get to know them in this movie, but also when they quickly start doing this kind of collective formation where they're uh, bringing in more and more people to get body snatched and kind of organizing some kind of large scale formation, it seemed so on the surface that I was, that confused me a little. But to get back to what Clyde was talking about with McTilly, that is one moment in the film where you, the first time in the film where you see like a regular person that you've kind of come to know a little bit get body snatched and I found that to be the most affecting scene in the movie because she embodies that switch so well and it is a surprising one too you know she the change is so subtle but so sinister and of course the effects there you know the the way her body crumbles and then you see the snatchers come through the roof uh, and grab the protagonist 
all of that is quite scary and affecting. But I thought that that switch was so great. And later, there's another kind of moving scene, which is the Forrest Whitaker scene where he's he's jittery. I also thought it was very funny to see Forrest Whitaker in this this type of role. He always has a very authoritative role in movies nowadays, like this kind of swaggy, like kind of veteran guy. And now he here he's just like kind of falling apart. But even that confrontation was so, so strange to watch because we don't really get to know him. And why is he this like defender of individuality in the military? It was all like seemed a little scrambled to me thematically. But I do want to like tip my hat to that the moment with Meg Tilly, who we should say plays the stepmom of the protagonist, the teenage girl who's the protagonist of the movie. So she is a stepmother. And so she's already like a, a person towards whom we come in with some kind of ambivalence because our protagonist is kind of resentful of her relationship with her father. And so that moment where we realize she's been body snatched um, just works really well because we're both we're feeling already wary of her but then McTilly is such a sympathetic sympathetic figure that then we're also feeling protective I just thought that was quite wonderful I absolutely agree with you that Meg Tilly is the MVP of this movie and to your point I think that there are two institutions that this movie is immensely skeptical of one is obviously the military but I think the other is the the family unit I, w- I was going to say the EPA. <laughs> no. I mean, the EPA sort of useless in this movie. Yeah, it's just it's such a random... It could be anyone, right? Like, he could have been part of any government agency. <laughs> Absolutely. But when it, it's like the family stuff is the, the most interesting stuff in this movie. Because as you say, like, Meg Tilly as a stepmother is already, like, a bit suspect to the Gabrielle Anwar the teen daughter character. Um, but then, you know, we're, we don't care about spoilers in this conversation, right? This movie so, came out uh, in the 90s. We're not... Sure, fair. Yeah. So, as over the course of the movie, as family members uh, become replaced by pod people, um, uh, all this ob- obvious tension arises within the family. I think the, the, the little brother character is the first to notice. Um, and it, I do... Th- it has that great scene in the daycare where the little brother character who is, I don't know, about eight, nine years old, uh, perhaps even younger, is dropped into uh, a daycare and they everyone in the daycare is, is tasked with making finger paintings and then when the teacher asks the stu- the, the kids to show their art to the, the group they all have the exact same finger painting i think what confused me is yes i do think the movie's more about the family unit and there's all these kind of strange scenes of intimacy and conflict too. You know, there's a very weird sort of scene of foreplay between the stepmother and the father where the stepmother is like mimicking some kind of dinosaur or monster. There are lots of little like scenes like that. You know, there's also a moment where uh, Gabriel Onward's character has a con- like this confrontation with her father and he's like, you can just leave if you don't like this, you know, just a very, uh, these moments of familiar, like, these familial dynamics that seem strange, not in that they're not realistic, but they're not the kind that we usually see in these kinds of films. Like you don't really see like the stepmother and father have some kind of weird monster themed <laughs> foreplay and you don't see um really kind of rancorous arguments 
And so that kind of woven into this film, I found very interesting. But then I guess what confuses me is the is the coda where Gabriel Anwar's character, I mean, she flies away and then there's this voiceover about how they waged war and they went back for revenge. And the movie is just like on some other plane then. It seems like it's it's talking about something entirely different from the family unit or even like broad ideas of conformity. It seems to be talking about the military industrial complex or global like war. I'm not sure. Or I th- like that the fact that the aliens like took over everything outside of the base already, right? That's was I, that's how I read it. But also, I wonder if this was, and maybe you guys can know more about this. But like, maybe this is where the studio meddling got involved because there's this scene where they're just like blowing up trucks carrying pods. There's lots of explosions, and like suddenly, this doesn't seem to be in keeping with what we've seen before. Well, um. Nicholas, I don't know if you've done uh, research into this topic because you mentioned uh, studio meddling earlier. I know that this is a movie where it was sort of like in post-production where they sort of went through hell on this movie. Uh, And to me, like that, the the voiceover that bookends the movie like just screams studio impose like anytime there's a movie that opens and ends with narration has no narration in the middle it's like all right the studio made this happen. It reminded me a lot of Seven actually. The like there's like the coda of Seven is like an entirely studio imposed sort of thing like right after he kills Kevin Spacey's character like the original like screening of that movie ends like cuts to black but like the the you know theatrical release like has this coda where you know brad pitt's character goes to prison and like morgan freeman has this like sort of supposed to be like profound poetic like little thing where he's like you know humanity is worth saving or whatever blah 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 blah. which like the 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 coda to body snatchers really feels like that because it's like you're like uh, totally like it feels like they are trying to high up loose ends that aren't like even occurring to the audience. <laughs> so it's like, but I also feel like, you know, I, I mean, there's like three or four screenwriters like on this movie, which like is never like a good thing to me. And so like going in, it's sort of like, okay, I wonder how this will come together as like a cohesive thing. I think that what everyone's been talking about, you know, these various scenes or moments on the like structural level, on the level of performance, like on the way that the movie looks, the themes, like as I was watching it, I was sort of like, this is really interesting because like the story is like very simple. And I think the details are where Abel Ferrara was trying to like get some sort of like specificity or just like, you know. Individuality. Yeah, yeah. And I think like that's a sort of interesting, like you can put the light meta sort of reading on it of like this movie that's supposed to be about this thing that is also being made by this like similar forces kind of thing. Corporate. Yeah, corporate, like big studio, like sort of like condescending kind of like whatever. But I also feel like in the history of like that genre, like the sort of alien invasion genre, like it is interesting to me that it's set on a base and that the like corollary is supposed to be like military, like sort of conformity just because like the military is usually the good guy in this situation. Like it's like war of the worlds. It's like, Oh my God, where's the military? Like we need like the military to help us. And like, and so the idea that like 
these aliens are taking over these soldiers who are sort of already predisposed to like mindlessly follow orders partly because Forrest Whitaker is in it like and he's like in the military it made me think of a lot of Arrival but like I think it's like this movie and Arrival are kind of like weirdly in conversation with each other like in the negative because it's like Arrival has like a very strange relationship to like government involvement bureaucracy like the military like the usefulness of them in like a unprecedented situation right like and like the utter uselessness in body snatchers where it's like totally haphazard and like i forgot who brought this up but like you know the the implication that like the rest of the world's already fucked so like you might as well just like give up like i don't know it was it was a movie i wasn't expecting to think about very much and like as i was watching it i think the flaws are like really strange like misconnections are like pretty interesting i'm not surprised by that because it's abel ferrara one curious thing and a bit of a complaint i had was that the movie doesn't make enough use of the concept of people being doubled or like cloned Uh, and there's one scene where gabriel anwar has to basically chuck her brother out of she also shoots helicopter? her father, right? She shoots her dad. She does. She, she shoots she, her dad. She kills multiple family members. Her, fa- uh, 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 her brother out of the helicopter. I guess the latter stuck with me more, but you're right. She does <laughs> shoot her father. But the thing is, she's like not conflicted at all when she shoots her father because she's like very certain. Right. But when she has to throw out her brother, you see her kind of struggling a little bit. And cinematically, it's also a very affecting scene because he's a child. And you're like, what if you got it wrong? You're throwing a child out of this airplane. Well, the child was like viciously attacking her. Right. (laughs) But, you know, children are also kind of volatile. But that's a different uh, discussion. (laughs) I guess I was just like, I wish that there had been more moments of playing with that, you know, playing with, can you kill this person who looks and acts exactly like someone you love but something's off and that's a obviously a very cinematic trope it mm-hmm. occurs in so many movies not just horror movies but you know how do you how do you deal with the with like duplicates of people you love and you have to kind of figure out if they're like the matrix or something you know there this is like that classic kind of premise i like the thing it made me think of this yeah. one too like i think like the Clyde, you were talking about like there's like a sort of this movie operates on a shorthand, like I think in a lot of ways. And I like there's also like that weird sort of like he adopts the screaming thing that's from like the 70s movie, which is yeah, not exactly. in the original, like the sort of to alert that there's a human. And like I think there's like also a thing about like the bodies being like picked up by like a garbage truck or something. Like it like it so the, the movie is like establishing like it's in conversation with the previous versions but it's also like it's so strange to me that this movie is like under an hour and a half like I think that's the part of it that I feel like maybe is why it doesn't all gel very well is like there's definitely stuff like missing and like I think there's a different version where you spend more time just like on certain things like it's very disjointed and like uh Clint, you were talking about like the explosions at the end like I, it, like there's just like a sense of like it's like five different people's like movie is like strung together yeah i think especially near the end it gets kind of haphazard but i feel like it's very economical 
like I think that there are the the moment about doubling. There's like you know a scene for for that. You know, there's the when the when the dad has to confront the uh, Meg Tilly's pod person version, and and she she almost talks him into like accepting his own pod, like dying basically, and letting a pod person take over. And he's like on the verge of doing it, and then like the children have to pull him back. I think that that's kind of like where he's he's so compelled by this copy of his wife that he's going to do that that he's going to like die basically um but yeah i think i I, one thing that i did find really interesting is that the movie's what like 70 minutes long maybe like 80 minutes 85 or something like that and it's very economical it's just very pared down it seems the dialogue is very simple but very straightforward almost to the point of abstraction and gesturing towards like what these characters are like rather than actually having them express it. I think to to its benefit, because I think it kind of gives the whole movie kind of a, a strange dreamlike quality that yeah. does provide some unity, even though you have these strange, you know, big business imposed, big business, man, they're always <laughs> imposing the explosions. But uh, I wanted to also talk about the actually creepy element, which I think is the, is Yes, it's very economical. It seems almost very low budget in some ways, but the special effects are like legitimately pretty scary. Yeah. Clyde, I'm curious if this was part of your calculation. I didn't find it very scary per se. You know, I found it to be like creepy in the sci-fi kind of way and not scary in the horror kind of way. Maybe one of the movies we're going to discuss is like scary in the classic horror, you know, jump scares and and chills uh i don't know what's your kind of categorization of this movie you know within the horror genre i think within like the three invasions of body snatcher adaptations that existed up until this point i think this actually is the scariest of the three in that like so much like the the other two really operate in that like the level of like paranoid thriller for a lot of it especially that second one um and then this one, and I think part of it is like maybe it's like as Clint is saying how like uh, economical this film, the filmmaking is in this movie, where like at a at a certain point it just goes into thriller mode. But it's never the kind of movie where it's uh, there are no jump scares. It's really it's this sort of like atmospheric dread that is sort of like permeates everything in the movie up until a certain point when then you realize everything is going terribly wrong. There's a Twin Peaks vibe too that sort of the creepy, just sort of a general unease. Oh, like, yeah, this early '90s, what's going on in this town, yeah, sort of thing. Guys with perfect hair, '50s haircuts, walking around like something's wrong. Yeah. But I also think it's a sort of ambiguity at various points of this movie, or what's interesting to me, especially how ambiguous the ending is because it's like either like you've got two two readings of this ending it's like uh where a teen and her her new helicopter uh flying boyfriend have blown up all of these trucks with the pods or is it that this is just purely futile and uh it's it's game over already the corporate overlords won man they always come out on top man you get like this like Zabriskie Point-ish ending where you just yeah. see stuff blown up in slow-mo for about two minutes. And right. It's pretty cool. It's it's a strange shift in scale um, at that point in the movie, I think. It is. That's why I was, I was very much like, now, is this about the world? What's happening in the world? Or is it still about the family? I mean, you know, it just kind of jumps in a way. 
Um, but you know, maybe this is a good point to switch to Nicholas's uh, movie assignment. Um, which maybe Nicholas, you want to introduce? Which is about the family and the wars perpetrated within. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the sins of the father, that kind of thing. Right. And originality and individuality in filmmaking. Copies. With, within studio film culture. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Corporate like it's, overlords, Mr. Jenkins or whatever that guy's name. They, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a knotted sort of very rich tapestry. Yeah. Um, Michael Powell's uh, 1960 movie, Peeping Tom, which I saw... Clint, we, you mentioned this, that you hadn't seen this since college. I saw this in a horror film class mm. in college. I'd never heard of it. I feel like if you're like raised on a certain diet of uh, cable TV, uh, this kind of stuff doesn't really seep to the, uh, to the top. But um, it's so interesting because like it's a film about voyeurism. Yeah. Why don't you tell us, why don't you, maybe because we had you do the pressy for it. Body Snatchers. Clyde, do you want to talk us through Peeping Tom? Sure. Uh, what happens at Peeping Tom... Uh, gee, how does one explain this movie? It opens uh, with uh, the murder of a woman in London, 1960. Uh, that's all happening on 16 millimeter. A sex worker, to be specific. A sex worker. I thought that was notable. Yeah. It has, it has the 16 millimeter frame, as I recall correctly. You realize you're watching something that is stylized in some way, and you realize it's through a 16 millimeter camera. Uh, and then, um, if I recall correctly, uh, you see the footage being projected onto a wall, and then you realize that you are in the room with the man who filmed this, this act and committed this act, who is... Um, is he, is he a cameraman or is he an assistant cameraman? He works on the camera focus crew. Yeah. Focus he's puller. a focus. That's it. He's a focus puller with a history of uh, horrible abuse that has uh, been inflicted upon him. Uh, that he acts out onto uh, women across London uh, with the use of his sixty millimeter camera uh, and uh, horrible uh, knife tripod. He also like you know he on the side he like does like soft core like pan up photography like that's the other sort of main interaction like with women I feel like yeah there was way more going on in this film than I expected there to be uh, it just acquired layer after layer as it went on because yes the true line is. It's this guy who, this kind of creepy guy played by Carl Bohm, who we learn very early on, like murders women, but like films that murder with his camera and then has this weird little screening room where he watches these videos, uh, these films. But then also his father was some kind of scientist a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist, right? Yeah, yeah. Who who performed experiments on him, which range from creepy to outright abuse, and has this film archive of that. But yeah, then he also does like the softcore pinup photography for extra bucks. He also has seems to have a genuine desire to be a film director. Sometimes that's used as a cover for his crimes, but it seems like he does. So there is something about his desire to make something original. You know, right now he's just a focus puller. And then he has this relationship with a woman who lives in the flat below his, and he's the landlord for the whole building, who seems to just, like, 
pierce through some of this, his facade to something sincere and makes him kind of question his impulses, his kind of murderous and voyeuristic impulses because he wants to try and have a relationship with her. But I just, I, I was very, I mean, truly dazzled by how many layers this movie has. Even his method of killing acquires so many more dimensions. You know, at the end, you realize it's not just that he has this pointy <laughs> tripod, but also there's that- There's like a mirror. <laughs> yeah, there's a mirror that turns people's faces, like makes their faces monstrous. So they he films them looking at his camera with their faces full of fear, not just at him, but this like deformed- they're image of their own eye. face yeah. yeah but also in this kind of fun housey mirror yeah. thing so there's you know there's that and there's all this stuff about you know scopophilia <laughs> at some point he mm -hmm. realizes that what he and maybe his dad also suffered from was scopophilia which is this lurid obsession with seeing like prurient obsession with voyeurism you know getting yeah voyeurism getting uh pleasure out of watching people in illicit ways and of course that's like a very central part of how we even think of film and its pleasure so it's worth noting that like this is like the film that powell himself like credits as like destroying his career <laughs> well there was a, it was you know there's been reams and reams of essays ink spilled about peeping time i think early on the the ink was that it was very like people hated this movie when it came out it was they like, just thought it was like there's a great uh criterion essay uh by i think it's laura mulvey Mulvaney, who talks about like the contemporary british criticism about the movie was like very steeped in realism and so the idea was like if that is the case in this if that is like the blinder you have on then this movie is like a, de a realistic depiction of something incredibly depraved and like not approving of, but it's like there's like this lurid sort of like amoral sense of like, why would you want to see this is like the most disturbing, sexually explicit sort of like, you know, depraved kind of thing you could see. And like, obviously now, like, I think, like Devika, as you're saying, like, there's all these layers to this movie that I are so like... I, it's funny certain films you like know that there's like a contemporary like negative reaction to and like you watch them and you're sort of like I guess you really have to like watch this movie like with an axe to grind not to see like all the other stuff that's going on because I think like the movie is so like anticipatory of a certain kind of like filtered life I mean like I was thinking about this movie because I'm doing a um, column for reverse shot on found footage and like this is not a found footage movie, but it like kind of is. And like it, it, you know, this sort of like the first person point of view, like the guy behind the camera being like this person who sort of doesn't exist, but is like allowed to like infiltrate other people's lives. And even like his neighbor, the young woman who lives with her like blind mother, I think it like, you know, the, she knows him because like he was filming her like 21st birthday party. <laughs> like, and he's shoving the camera in people's faces all the time. And he's just saying, I'm making a documentary. And that, it's, it's, it, I found it quite surprising that that's not th the way that was presented and that people are not 
more creeped out by that in the film. Well, I think there's also this sense too of like, you know, it's 1960. It's not like cinema's new, but there's like this sense of like the camera is supposed to be in a very specific place, right? It's in studios. It's like, it's on a set, whatever, right? Like you even see this in like a lot of like silent movies, like Buster Keaton movies. You're like, just like watch the background. Like people are like, like what the fuck is going on? And I think like there's like a legitimacy or sort of like authority that's granted to you I, I still now, like when you have someone has a camera, you sort of are like, okay, like this has to be for a reason. And like in the movie, he kills, um, I think one of the actresses on the set like that he's working on and the police come and he's filming the police, like questioning him. And like, as you were saying, Devika, like his entire reason is that he's shooting a documentary and they're like, uh, sure, I guess so. And they're even flattered. Yeah, of course. Just, like, yeah. It doesn't paint a very flattering portrait of the of the uh, police of London either. Of the police are just like I think anyone who gets to be on the other side of the camera. I think like there's like multiple versions of that throughout, like multiple different types of people, different types of subjects, right? And like this sense of both you become more real on camera and and also less real, right? Like it, like he is capturing this moment that ostensibly you're not really supposed to be able to see like you're watching someone die and like not only that you are like visiting death upon them and so like it is like this incredibly like perverse sort of compulsion and it, it, it truly is a compulsion because later in the movie like the mom of the girl in the flat like is like pretty suspicious of him and like they go on a date and then like he comes back and the mom is there <laughs> and like in his secret lair too in his lair yeah he has like this like black or like you know photo like development room where he like screens his like vi- like film for himself and like she's blind the mom is blind and it's like that sort of like you know very wise like sees mm-hmm like beyond perception kind of thing like she sort of knows that there's something wrong and he has he has this absolute compulsion to watch these things like right after they're done such that like he watches the thing the film he just made while she's in the room because he like has to he has to see it and i think like Clint, you're saying you know there's like been so much like critical work about this movie like just reappraisal about like what's going on but I also think like it is this film that, you know, works on a very high like intellectual level, but it's also like very unsettling. I think partially because it's like very beautiful. <laughs> like Yeah. I mean, this is really a primo psychoanalysis text, you know. It's mm-hmm. oh totally. You know, yeah. it kind of lays out all these psych uh, you know psychoanalytic ideas that you know many of which came after this movie and many of which reference this movie but it really lays out that schematic of obsession and scopophilia and childhood abuse and all of that in this way and i was just thinking you know other texts like that are like vertigo and rear window you know and um of course hitchcock has made many creepy movies but i think for example rear window is not to me creepy in the same way that this movie is this movie is just very viscerally and immediately creepy so that's it it works on this like theoretical intellectual level but i found it just so unsettling even for such an old movie um there's little moments that actually don't have anything to do with the larger plot but are so striking and distinctive like 
early in the film, he's when he's shooting, you know, the softcore pinups, there's a moment where he's tasked with shooting a new model who has some kind of like a cleft lip or some kind of deformity in her mouth, scar, something like that. And he, and it's such a striking moment. Like we don't, we only see her back for the most of the scene. And then she turns around and he is totally mesmerized by her face and her eyes. And he, and this doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really have any place in the plot. It, it kind of cues us into his slightly compulsive nature, but we already know he's a weirdo killer. But, you know, but there's, and then there's that scene where he um, lures this kind of, um, this se- a bit actress in the film he's working on um, into the studio at night under the pretext of making a film with her. And she does a little dance around the studio, you know, which of course, like, makes you think of the red shoes and and other other Powell and Pressburger also films. because it's Maura Shearer from the red shoes oh it is the same actress it's the same actress oh I didn't I didn't even clock that okay so it very much is like a pre-echo and I think these sorts of little moments of strangeness that don't have anything to do with narrative where some other films in the same vein I mean I don't want to make like a glib comparison with Hitchcock but like this is a film with a lot of plot but it's not tied down to plot. There's just so many other touches that are creepy in and of themselves and just add like emotional mm-hmm. shading or just give you, you know, are just uh, standalone set pieces that are not just like driving forward some kind of resolution or puzzle. Not least of which is Carl Bohm's performance, which I think is really strange and interesting because he's playing somebody named Mark Lewis, whose father is British supposed to be british yet he has like a very slight german accent <laughs> which just immediately which just shifts everything just a little every interaction he has is just sort of slightly odd he's like a ken doll i think that's the other thing about this movie is like i've seen this movie a lot of times and like i can't ever decide if it's like a confluence of makeup or like the, the way it's shot the lighting everyone looks so almost like clay like there is like a layer of like the sort of, you know, this perfect like blonde, blue eyed sort of like guy who like, I think by dint of that is like, you know, able to exist in a lot of different types of spaces. Like even like if it's an all white space, it's like a sort of like there's like there's something else about him that is so not inviting, but like it's like permissive. It's like, yeah, like I've seen that kind of guy everywhere. Well, sure. Like, I think in the world of the movie, that's true. But as as viewers, I think he's immediately creepy because of his like vaguely Nazi attributes, you know, like, and I think that I think he's he'd be read that way for a contemporary audience, too. Like, well, he himself, like, had this like very, you know, he, he talked about the sort of relationship to this character because of his own relationship with his father, who was like, I think, a conductor or a composer, a German like musician who was like you know very famous and who you know was like a very large Nazi sympathizer who like whose sort of shadow over his life was like very oppressive and you know the the father figure in I mean the father in this movie you know like his echo obviously is like born out in that like part where you learn about like what happened to him as a child but like you know he's like literally living in his father's old flat and like there and you know sort of shares in his father's obsession or like 
doesn't share it's like sort of like infected him too and like i think the hitchcock um comparison is apt but i also feel like you know hitchcock made movies about movies but like this one is like so much about like what it means in a negative way to like to sort of take something to create something i mean this is a film that like scorsese was like a huge champion of like from what i understand like the, this the print for this film was like well it was censored like in a lot of places but then it was like just out of circulation and i think he like bought or brought a print to show at like one year of the new york film festival like but he was saying like i i don't know if he still thinks of this now but like he at one point scorsese was like this is like the movie about filmmaking in terms of just like you are doing something to someone by shooting them. You're doing something to a narrative or to a story, to a life that is very violent. And like, obviously there's like literal violence in this movie. The camera itself is like, you know, visiting violence upon it. Like in the sort of way that like the eye of like the alien in Nope is sort of like the consuming like aspect of that creature but it drives home this sense of of, uh, just like this very tense and like charged feeling that what you're watching is like horrible because obviously the things that are being depicted are horrible but then you are watching a dramatization of this thing that is happening and the audience has like a more active role I also think it's it's worth noting that I think in the halls of uh, perverse director cameos, uh, we <laughs> need to put Michael Powell's cameo in Peeping Tom in those, in which he pl- he very briefly, uh, as seen in the home movies, plays the abusive father to uh, the Mark Lewis character, uh, who is the the person who creates this monster, who inflicts all this abuse onto this person, um, and, and, and creates this, this uh, deeply uh, tortured and flawed uh, killer that, uh, that we see in the film. I hadn't seen this film since college, uh, like others uh, on this call. Um, I remember very vividly, I watched this on my laptop, I think in like the laundry room of my dorm while, uh, while my laundry was going. That's pretty creepy. It was creepy. It was creepy. This is the first Michael Powell movie I'd ever seen. Oh, wow. Um, so this is sort of maybe uh, a sign of uh, my perverse journey through the history of cinema going backwards from Peeping Tom. Um, but I, I rewatched this thing last night, and I was really just so floored watching it for the first time in in about two decades. Um, and I also couldn't believe that this was 1960, this film, because as I was watching it, the thing that immediately came to mind was uh, I was thinking of Hitchcock's Frenzy for maybe the first like 10, 15 minutes of this movie. And then it only occurred to me that, wait, Frenzy is like 11 years after, after yeah. this one. Um, but in terms of just like a film about... Um, uh, uh, a vicious killer uh, prowling uh, the, the streets of, of London, uh, uh, murdering uh, young women. It's it's there, but I guess the real the, the the more correct analog or time analog to this film is Psycho. Right? These are like the, they're, they're the same year, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I think so. 
Which didn't ruin Hitchcock's career. No, it did not. It, it sort of, uh, it maybe like rocketed Hitchcock's career to yeah. a new level. I mean, um, I think that, so I think it's interesting to think, I mean, to me, that's one of the more interesting, like, what about this movie so disturbed viewers? And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it directly implicates the audience in the in the violence that the killer is perpetrating. Maybe not in the same way, but yeah. I don't want to say that it sympathizes with Mark, but, you know, it it kind of is also strangely, I mean, it is very tender toward him, especially at the end. Um, And the fact that he falls in love with this woman and that love seems to really unlock something uh, genuine inside him. It's all kind of a little bit troubling to Mm -hmm. hold together, you know, in a way that I don't know if... Some of the other movies we're talking about, including Psycho, have those poles together. You know, this kind of real... Again, I I keep coming to the word tenderness because I was just almost taken aback by how how much this woman's kindness and attention seems to just shake him and bring out his own trauma without changing how we perceive him entirely because at the end of the day, he's still like this really creepy serial killer of women and i think there is something there that feels very unsettling and perhaps was even more so in the 60s you know where there was a certain it was a certain period in feminism and a a a kind of i think also a a period when cinema and tv there was a lot of fear about how media influences viewers right like fear around like responsible depictions that there could be copycats that that the media really can corrupt viewers and i think that this movie implicates the viewer like you said clint but also it 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 just paints a complex portrait of this guy that doesn't fit into neat moral binaries you know even more so than hitchcock films in my opinion in which the guys are often like just really bad (laughs) you know well, I think an important distinction if we're comparing this film to Psycho is that I think Psycho is playing a game with the audience where the thing about Psycho is that like you don't know who exactly who the killer is until the end and Norman Bates is sort of just this guy for a while whereas right off the bat Peeping Tom tells you he's a killer. It's a, it, it there's no game. It's just sort of it invites you in to this world of like this is the guy we're going to follow for the next 90 minutes. And I think that there's such like um, it's probably sympathy for this this character in that like it tells you pretty much everything you can know about this person. It doesn't try to hide anything. It's very upfront about that, and then it's just you have to deal with that. Well, I also think like my last thing about this movie that I think is like literally the last thing of the movie, which it, like is what makes it so effective to me. You can lose sight of the fact that he is like building to like a larger project, right? Like the like the final scene of his film is like him dying. I think that even makes it all more knotted as well because it's like you have this long string, not I mean not long, probably in the assembly of this like film that he's making, but like this string of women who are being killed. And then it ends with him, like the creator being killed. For him, there's like this sense of like catharsis or like a completion, if not catharsis, right? Like this is what it's all building towards is like is his own sort of like inclusion in the film. And 
I think part, I don't want to get too off base here. I think it's partially just because it was like very fresh in my mind because it was the last thing I saw before this. It reminded me a lot of Killers of the Flower Moon. Like there's like a very meta aspect of that to me that I think is like the self-insertion of like the creator is like, you know, is it, it can mean a lot of different things. And like, I think in Peeping Tom, it can mean so many different things and none of them are great. And like, like none of them are like satisfying as such. They're like just very disturbing that like, it is at once like Devika, you're saying there's like a tenderness to it. Cause like he's clearly, Mark is clearly struggling with this trauma, but also that doesn't like make it okay. And it like, and I think there's a layer of that movie where he knows it doesn't make it okay. I think it's morally and socially truly like depressing and dark in a way yeah. that you can't square away. You know, like yeah. it, it really is very sad. It's yeah. sad that he did does this to all these women. It's sad that he is troubled. It's sad that he dies like this. And it yeah. in that way, I think it's actually very, even though the movie's kind of hyper real I would say in many ways the way it's shot it's very beautiful um there's all these little pieces that come together that really evince like writing you know it's a very written movie but at the same time it does get at something that feels very real um you know the nature of violence and the the way in which we can't often make sense of why people do certain things. And even if we can make sense of that, there's no like easy, satisfying way to deal with that. Like often these are just like tragedies that beget more tragedies. And we, there's no explanation that's going to make you feel good about this. And I think it really, like what you're saying, Nicholas, I think it really j- does hit that by the end, you know, that feeling of nihilism. And it's like, love is not enough, which I always find very disturbing. <laughs> like, right, right. You know, like, he does have like this positive like presence in his life, but it's almost like the project is too far gone that like it, it won't, it can't, it can't do anything. To he's already him. murdered by the time he's met her. So yeah. And I think like for him to like deviate that late in the game, what, like, you know, to him, I think like, obviously the authorities closing in, like sort of like accelerates things, but like it, the, the end is like, you know, he knows how that movie is going to end like from the very beginning. And so to watch that movie with that in mind, I think like rewatching it and knowing like how it ends, it's sort of like adds this whole other sort of undercurrent because you're like, Oh yeah, no, he is like building to this thing. You find yourself, you find yourself, um, I don't know about rooting for him, but you find yourself like not wanting it to end horribly. And you want him to find some, some kind of, way out or something yeah. you know like the the movie's at, like built in a way that asks that of the audience i think and that's similar to killers of the flower moon i think i think devika's spot on that's likely why it's so remains so disturbing talking about a way out i think that we are <laughs> well past our time but i thought that maybe we could get to what clint suggested at the beginning doing a little bit of a roundup of some recommendations from you both Clyde and Nicholas for our readers Clyde feel free to plug your incredible series give us some three give us three picks that maybe not enough people are talking about and you'd like them to see I think the 
the one title I'm really trying to push upon everyone is uh, When a Stranger Calls Back. Uh, 1993 sequel to When a Stranger Calls. Don't worry, you don't need to see the original one. Um, uh, to me, this was sort of this was one of my favorite movies that I've that I've watched in the last few years, and it was sort of like the the impetus to really have the confidence to 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 do 90s horror. So this is the one film I wanted to get. Okay, and. Uh, I think my pitch for this movie is that I think that the the babysitter and peril horror movie is like the lowest form of horror movie imaginable. There are just so many bad ones. Um, but when I watch this for the first time, within the first 20 minutes, I find myself asking, is this a masterpiece? Uh, I think it's dynamite. Uh, Carol Kane, Charles Durning are in it. It's really, it's, it's terrific. One, yeah, uh, that... Number one pick, When a Stranger Calls Back, followed by Death by Temptation, uh, the ultimate Fort Greene vampire movie. Okay. Um, and behind that is Body Parts. Uh, the, the Jeff Fahey uh, had his, uh, plays a guy who, gets his, who loses his arm in a car accident and then gets a new arm, uh, but realizes this arm is doing things he doesn't want it to do. Uh, those are my three picks. Cool. Before we go on to Nicholas, I'm going to throw in a 90s horror movie that we were hoping to get to today, but we didn't manage to talk about. Um, and it's it's very different from the movies we've discussed, but it, it's all, it also came out in 1993, and it's called Bedevil, directed by Tracy Moffat, who's an Aboriginal Australian director and artist, made some fantastic work across several mediums. It's notable as reportedly the first feature ever made by an Australian Aboriginal woman, which is kind of insane. It came out in 1993, which is not that long ago. Um, but yeah, I think it's streaming on Ovid and is also available on Canopy and a few other sites online. And it's just this really remarkable anthology of three horror stories inspired by indigenous and aboriginal folklore that just combines aspects of folklore with real colonial history in Australia and kind of this idea of colonialism as a kind of haunting and uh, the scars that it leaves behind, how they they come back. I It's honestly much too complex to even summarize, but it's like a movie that is very spooky and scary and has all those traditional little horror elements, jump scares and ghosts, and there's a swamp that sucks people in and, you know, all of that, but then also just uh, feels very artistic in a lot of different ways in, in the making, formally, visually, uh, in the references it draws upon. So just going to throw that in. And then over to you, Nicholas. Um, well, I'll shout out uh, one of the 90s films from Clyde's collection. I hope it's in the collection, The Faculty, which I, I, I'll just tell you who's in it, which is like, it's Jordana Brewster, Fonka Jansen, Josh Hartnett, Elijah Wood, John Stewart, weirdly enough, <laughs> Robert Patrick. It's written by Kevin Williamson, the guy who like started the Scream franchise and Dar uh, Dawson's Creek and the Vampire Diaries. <laughs> like it, it's directed by Robert Rodriguez. Amazing movie. Can't tell if it's amazing, like as a masterpiece or it's really bad. I don't care. It's like so fun. Amazing movie. 
Second one is the old dark house, James Whale, right after he did Frankenstein, also Boris Karloff. Weird, creepy, sort of gothic, not haunted house, but like weird house um, movie. Very beautiful, very effective. You sort of are watching the tropes of like gothic filmmaking, like being made and like also sort of being made fun of at the same time. And then my third pick is Noroi, The Curse, um, a found footage Japanese film that takes the format of like an episode of like this supernatural investigation show um, that has all these twists and turns related to this old ritual that was performed at this like secluded part of Japan and how it infects like children and there's like you know a lot of psychics and there's a lot of uh you know red herrings there someone i saw someone compare this movie to tinker taylor soldier spy in the in the sense that like there's so much happening and there are all these tangents that this movie goes on that you kind of have like lose track of like what's happening and it all comes together at the end it's so well done it's so scary um and it's like one of my favorite found footage movies. It's right up there with like Lake Mongo to me, which also, if you haven't seen Lake Mongo, watch Lake Mongo. Well, that's a good list, I think, to end on. Thank you both for joining us. And may you have a creepy, spooky Halloween. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.